Happy New Year and welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we interview Debbie Applegate, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Henry Ward Beecher, the charismatic 19th-century preacher and brother of writer Harriet Beecher Stowe. Applegate's latest book, Madam, a biography of Polly Adler, icon of the Jazz Age, was published by Doubleday in November 2021. Fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell started this interview by asking how Debbie Applegate's background influenced her writing. Your first book was The Most Famous Man in America, the biography of Henry Ward Beecher, who you rescued from uh, obscurity, very famous 19th century preacher. Did your family religious background draw you to Beecher? Absolutely, especially in retrospect. I think I might have chosen him because he was a quintessential New Englander, the last of the great line of Puritan ministers. But you're probably exactly right that it was really my experiences that made him seem so appealing. What we had in common rather than what we had that was different. Half of my family, uh, the Oregon half, are all Irish Catholics. The other half are all original homesteading Mormons who moved out to southern Idaho and Utah. By the time I was born, the family had fallen away quite a bit from those traditions, but I was steeped in the culture of them. And then when I was about 12, 13, my mother began to take an interest in new thought, which is a a very American invented religion, uh, much, I guess, like Mormonism in that sense. But new thought is very ecumenical, taking a lot of what they considered to be the best and most loving and most common sensible ideas from many religions and bringing them together. But I think being around so many people who did care deeply about spirituality and about doctrine made me, I think, much more open-minded. And that's what I liked about Henry Ward Beecher was he had a lot of the fascinating doctrinal parts, but he was also a very open-minded man. Uh, perhaps best remembered now as uh, the little brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, but he had become famous really as a preacher who had shifted the world of congregational thinking, of traditional uh, mainstream Protestantism, away from a sort of uh, law and order, blood and thunder, Old Testament kind of approach to uh, a New Testament emphasis on love and forgiveness. Okay. And in graduate school, uh, he became the subject of my dissertation. I faltered in my courage when it came time to be a junior professor. And I thought, well, maybe I could try this as an author because it seemed easier. I don't know. It, It turns out it was not. I don't know what I was thinking. And the hope was that I would just whip through that book since I'd been working on it so long. And then it would come right out and it would be just perfectly timed to take advantage of all the public interest in uh, political sex scandals. That was a pipe dream. I think this is a great story for people doing their first biography. How and what did you discover about the difference between writing a scholarly dissertation and a commercial book? 
Well, the first thing I discovered is I did not know a damn thing about how to write a, a book that anyone would want to read. And in fact, I lost my first book contract after turning in the first couple chapters, which was a real wake-up call since I thought I was on the easy path. So I had to sit down and teach myself how to write a book that people would want to read. I understood how to do research. I love research. I understood how to make an argument, but I really didn't understand how to tell a story. And I think if you're doing scholarship, you are coming at it with the attitude that you as a reader are not going to pick up this book unless you are already someone who finds this subject interesting, or you are the type of person who would find some part of this interesting, even if you didn't know about it. When you're appealing to a broader readership, you really have to persuade them that this is interesting and you have to do it right away. Some of it is sentence level things. I just try to write in shorter sentences. I try to write in paragraphs that don't go on and on. I still sometimes have to remind myself about that. But more important, I had to do a sort of deep dive on what am I actually doing here in this process of writing? What is the purpose? Is it my purpose to educate? Is my purpose to entertain? Is my purpose to lay out um, some sort of persuasive argument? And what I really came to after much thinking is my purpose was to get the reader to read the next sentence to get the reader to read the next paragraph, to turn the page, to hopefully get to the end of the chapter and maybe to get to the end of the book. And when they close the book, to feel sorry that it's over. I mean, that's really baseline level what I realized was my mission. If people put it down, then I failed, which of course they are biographies. People will put them down. Yeah. Yes, they did, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but you didn't go like to uh, writing class, or maybe you, you did, you did an awful lot of it by reading other genres, right? Yes, that's, that's right. You know, it was a long enough time ago that writing classes were not, especially nonfiction writing classes, were not quite as common as they were. Manuals for writing narrative nonfiction were not as common. Uh, since then, we really, I think, are in a golden age of narrative nonfiction. So if I want to get someone to read the next page, what is it that does that? And what that is, is suspense. You have to wonder what comes next. If you don't wonder what comes next, then you're really not going to bother to go look and see what comes next. So I figured that was my way in. And so I started checking out books from the library here about how to write thrillers and how to write mysteries. And then I just did all of the exercises one of my favorite books was a book called Conflict, Action, Suspense. Uh, and I followed the outlines and tried putting in my material that way. And I did it over and over again. And at first, sometimes it seems silly. Like there were some of them hints were things like, if you want to have more tension, have it be raining. And I thought, <laughs> that's ridiculous. And yet, by golly, that boy, when now I'm now at the point where, you know, it's raining at the time where something big is happening. I'm like, we got to put that in because those things work. You're putting ideas in people's heads. You know, yeah. that's what you're doing. You can't control it entirely, but you're using associations. And by gosh, that's one of them. Yeah. Hemingway said many things about writing, but one of the things he said was, weather is important. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Another big thing that I did was um, I read this great piece just sort of randomly on how to write pornography because, you know, pornography too 
you want to get to the next sentence, by golly, <laughs> you want to get to the climax of the story. And sometimes I know it seems silly and like you could learn this in a junior high school writing class, but there was a little exercise. What do you do? And I still do this. If I get a little stymied and I'm trying to start a new section, describe a real person, all five senses. Uh, Elvira stood there naked in the cold basement, smelling the mold and uh, listening for footsteps. And then you endow that figure with feeling, feeling afraid uh, that someone would find her there naked. And then you start the action. And it's silly, but the number of times I have used that just to get myself going, because it's a reminder that people need to be able to see what you're talking about. It's very easy to become very abstract. So the more you start with something with all five senses, the easier it is to stay on track. Okay. So without giving away the punchline, you had a mantra while you were struggling with writing the book. And it was almost too good a, a tale to be true, but tell it again. You know, so as I say, I stumbled into writing biographies very randomly, very blithely without really thinking about what I was doing and with really without knowing a thing about the genre, except as a, as a casual reader. Uh, and I certainly knew nothing about really being a professional writer. So when I very quickly discovered that not only did I know nothing, but it was apparent to my editor, agent, and uh, publisher, and thus they no longer wished me to write that book, but good luck to me and could I repay the money? I realized at that point I would probably have given up, but since I had to repay the money, I realized I'm going to have to write this damn book. Uh, so that's when I did my, my self-study program there, but <laughs> it was still very discouraging. I had to rewrite enough to sell it again. And even then there was still so much to do. So sometimes when I would wake up and I would not be able to focus and what am I doing today? I would say, well, what do I have to do today to win the Pulitzer Prize? And I know this sounds ridiculous and arrogant. And I really was not like, oh, I'm going to win the Pulitzer Prize. But I was like, well, that's the way to go do it like they do. And that was at least some kind of goal. And in fact, one thing I really recommend and do all the time is what I call reverse outlining. And I went to a number of the Pulitzer Prize winners and first chapter, paragraph by paragraph outlined it. Not the actual subject, but what were they doing? Paragraph one, they're dropping you into a scene without telling you what's really going on. The second scene, they're elaborating on it, filling it out. Third scene, they introduce the conflict that's going to be happening. And then, then you go backstory. And what I discovered was, in the case of the fast food nation and Seabiscuit and many of the biographies, different as they were, they all had a very similar structure. And so I just thought, well, I'm a good copier in the way the old masters used to teach drawing, that I'm going to learn to do it their way. And at some point, if I want to depart, I will, but I'm going to try it their way. Yeah, I think Seuss Biscuit is a perfect biography. Yeah. Um, one thing that I did when I started was I took the hint from the movies and I would write out the script word by word to see how the movies set things up. You called it reverse? Reverse outlining. Yeah. That's interesting about because I started at the time looking at movies and I think I found it too hard to translate from medium to medium. The one thing that did help me is um, we are frequent subscribers to the Yale Drama School Cabaret. Almost every weekend, there is a new play, usually about one hour, maybe 90 minutes. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like seeing week after week of one hour plays 
to give you just a structural sense of how you introduce people quickly, how you immediately move them into tension and conflict, and then how you have partial resolutions, uh, and then you have a full arc. I mean, there's nothing like watching plays, I think, and I'm sure it's the same with film. And now I can see it. Now I can do it. I just couldn't do it back then. So the book gets published, and now the big reveal you're what sitting at home one day and your fr- a friend calls or you hear on the radio. I had just gotten home from the gym. I could not have looked any messier. I actually had a little tiny bit of a black eye from wrestling with my goddaughter, who's a toddler. And uh, after a drink, uh, that was wrong. That was wrong. Idea. <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden the phone starts ringing off the hook. It was a friend who saw it first. I was very impressed that they were really following the news. And then very quickly, within an hour, a photographer arrived uh, from the local paper. And I, I was like, now, now I have a little bit of a black guy and I have sweated through my clothes, but you know, it, it was really quite as shocking as it sounds. I had no idea after that little mantra, I would say it, but that didn't mean anything. And I could not have been more shocked. And I will say this, it really is transformative. It's not a transformative amount of money. Uh, I mean, it's a nice chunk of money. I was very happy to, and honored, but it's a transformative sense of stature. Uh, it was like getting tenure <laughs> and without actually getting a salary. It was all of a sudden I was a nobody and now people thought I was fancy. Did it convince you that you were fancy? I can tell you this, I was never going to write another book again. I was like, well, that's an idiot's calling. Uh, And (laughs) what it did, and no offense to my fellow biographers, but this is a crazy business. As I like to say, all the punctiliousness of the uh, petty bourgeoisie and all the penury of Bohemia. I mean, you'd get none of the the best sides either. Although my editor does say, but you get the pleasures of the peeping Tom in there. Uh, (laughs) It's not peeping Tom, it's research, Debbie, research. (laughs) That's why I'm always afraid to write about live people, because I will go through your underwear drawer. And uh, so, but, you know, I really was never going to write another book. It had been more stressful than I had planned. It had taken much longer than I planned. But there's nothing like having your vanity softened and the flattery in the sense of, oh, you're good at that. Why don't, it'll be easy for you. And that is essentially how I got sucked in. It was not good common sense. It was just my vanity. Yeah. And you ran into many difficulties with the new book on Polly Adler, similar to the ones about Beecher or a whole new fresh set of problems because now the stakes had been raised higher and you knew that everybody was going to be judging you as PPW, Debbie. Well, you know what, at this stage, the sad thing is I took so long on this book that I am no longer a fresh PPW. I'm sure somewhere people might know it or note it, but at this stage, I'm like the world's oldest sophomore writer. Uh, So that a lot of that sort of pressure faded. And I also should say, I wouldn't say I ran into problems with this book. I mean, that would be one way of excusing the fact that I took 13 years to do it. It was really that I had the privilege of being allowed to take as long as I wanted. My editor didn't love it. My publisher was not crazy about it, but they were allowing me to do it. And I did not have the common sense enough to to put limits on myself because the part that I like is the research. And she was an extraordinarily rich research subject. 
in part because we're in the grand age of digitalization. So there were always new things coming up. We're in the age of the internet, so I could find little nooks and crannies and anecdotes and, and rabbit holes. And I could really build out her world, uh, the, the underworld, uh, the jazz age, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before. So in some ways, the problem really was just that I was being self-indulgent. Another way of putting it is, if you're addicted to research, research has all the traits, uh, what do they call, variable response habits, so that you get just enough of the dopamine of finding something new. Yeah. Like I was getting like something great once every week or so. And then I was like, I just have to go down a little further, just a little <laughs> bit more. We had talked about the difficulties that you were having. And I was like, oh boy, I hope it's good. It is spectacular. The cast of characters is astonishing. The places that they wander through are, are amazing. You've, you go from Franklin Roosevelt to Al Smith to Jimmy Walker to Duke Ellington. It's just a, a amazing book. I keep turning the page saying, okay, I got to put it down and, and do something. It's like, oh no, who's he's there too? You know, the Algonquin Round Table. I mean, you, know, so you can see what, what was Dorothy Parker doing there. I mean, no, it's like, it was, it's, it's an you amazing. Can see, you can see what happened to me. Yeah. Well, now if I'm going to have to know, if she's so deep in the jazz world, now I got to know jazz. <laughs> BBDO was her biggest corporate client. I have to know more about advertising. I mean, that was the problem. I mean, that was the joy and the the delight of it but now my head is filled with arcana i mean it is i can tell you uh, who was the top vaudevillian 100 years ago today <laughs> practically it's worth it i promise you it's worth it it's an amazing work of art well, um, you, and you changed your writing style you found that this was ragtime and runyon and you used their patois What's the word for Broadway? The big stretch, the big, yeah, the big street, the big, the main drag. The, main, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, just uh, way. Yes. Yeah. That was part of the pleasure. It, and that is one of the things about reading so deeply for so long as you, you pick up the cadences. But I will say this, it took me some time to shake the Harriet Beecher Stowe out of my voice and pick up the Walter Winchell or the Damon Runyon. And even still, uh, every once in a while, it'll creep back in. Although, you know, I got a whole lot more of the, the wisecracking Broadway uh, guy in me than I used to. And I have to say, it was really a pleasure moving into the, from the 19th century to the 20th century, the plethora of photos and films and music that were available. I became a huge fan of pre-code Hollywood in a way that I never would have ever guessed. And it's amazing to me, many of the people who went on to make Hollywood what it was were people who Polly had known when they were younger and, you know, just uh, <laughs> picking up nickels around Times Square. You can see a lot of those old films really are quite realistic until you get to the end. And of course, as the film scholars like to say, throw out the last reel, because that's where the sentimental ending gets tacked on. So we all feel better about it. But so many of those movies really are reflecting what the world looked like and what people really spoke like. Yeah. Did you make a, a conscious decision at the beginning to write with a little bit more Runyon or did you just sort of fall into it over the course of the decade? Well, you know, that is one thing I when we were talking about the difference between scholarship and narrative nonfiction, that having the use of uh, what the literary theorists would call free indirect discourse, which is um, 
a fancy phrase for using language that sounds very close to what your subject would sound like without having it actually put into quotes. And uh, you do it as a sort of um, world building uh, because so much of the world we have around us is the way people talk about our worlds. Anyone who has spent time listening to older relatives or, you know, or pals on the street corner that a big part of what makes things different is how we talk. So that's one thing. I was being deliberate. That's a way of pulling people closer or further away. I feel like it's a tool of irony. Sometimes you're sort of partaking in the feelings uh, and the judgments of your characters, but other times you are subtly commenting on them. Sometimes you're pulling away from them. But it's also true that if you spend enough time reading different genres, I think you will pick up almost like an, a natural mimic. And yep. so I think the the chapters set in the Pale of Russia that are set in the Jewish shtetl and that are in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is pretty much a Jewish ghetto at that time in the early 20th century. They sound a little a little bit more Yiddishy, <laughs> a little bit more that way. But by the time we get to Hollywood, Polly Adler retires like so many of that cohort do out to the sunny climes of California in the 1940s when everyone's reinventing themselves. And so many of her friends are in Hollywood. She uh, takes voice lessons, just like so many of the people who went to the talkies that they didn't want to sound like they were from Brooklyn. They didn't want to sound like they were from the Lower East Side or uh, or queens and so the only recording i have of her you would think uh you know she was a, not the queen of england exactly but you, <laughs> maybe the queen of england's handmaid yeah so tell us who polly adler is and what was it about her story that intrigued you and made you want to use her as a subject for a biography when I was feeling softened up, like, well, maybe I'll write a book again. Maybe we'll just, we'll just look. We had talked about the 20s because the 20s is fun. That's, although I'd been, I would have been better off if I just stuck with what I knew. Because that's part of what took me so long is I was steeped in the world of Calvinism <laughs> and the Victorians and then decided, nope. I'm ditching the saints. Uh, I'm heading for the center. <laughs> and it really did take me a long time to get into the mindset of the Calvinists. At least Henry Ward Beecher wanted to be good. But I was looking through the stacks of the Yale Library and I ran across a little red book, little volume. I just pulled it out because it had a red cover and it was Polly Adler's memoir. And it was a memoir, a bestseller from 1953 called A House is Not a Home. And it was a memoir of her life as America's most famous madam from 1920 to 1945. Now, it, of course, was whitewashed. Plenty that's not being said in there. But it was a fabulous read. And it was filled, as you say, with all these characters. And she wasn't even naming a lot of the names. And you could see, much like Henry Ward Beecher, she was a kind of forest guy character. That's yeah. something they really have in common. They were the hot spots of their culture. And it just sort of grabbed me like maybe I could maybe I think there's enough here, even if I just were working with public sources and her memoir that I could find out more. And immediately she started to pay off. She turned out to have a richly documented newspaper trail because she had become so famous and been involved in a number of scandals and a number of gang wars. 
Walter Winchell was one of her biggest and loyalist clients, uh, as were many newspapermen and writers and people who went on to create much of the popular culture of 20th century. There were memoirs that mentioned her. She had a big FBI file that I was able to get my hands on, uh, the New York Municipal Archives. I could find many of her arrest records, although, of course, she changed her name all the time, so it was not I spent way too many hours wondering, could that be another <laughs> alias? But then there had two really fabulous blessings from the gods, really, well, really three. One is her childhood. She was raised in Russia. Uh, I came to the United States at the age of 13 alone because her family was going to join her in the coming months. But then World War I happened and all travel between Russia and the United States ended abruptly. And she was left essentially, um, you know, a teenage girl with very little supervision, very little support system, no strong family ties. And even more important, she was left to make her own living. She thought she was going to come to America and get an education and become somebody. And instead, here she was working in a garment factory for five bucks a week. And as the social uh, reformers used to say, dance halls are the way to the devil. Uh, She got very involved in ragtime. She started spending her time with all the other girls out running around. And little by little, she did find herself on the primrose path. And at some point when she's around 19, she has to decide is she going to stay in this dead end life that she has? Maybe she'll marry some nice Jewish boy and they'll be poor together. Or is she going to strike out for something bigger and more exciting and take some control of her life? And it's hard to imagine for someone who has never been in this position, but for a lot of women in that position, especially young women at that time, choosing prostitution, at least for a period of time, they often think temporarily, it seems like the thing that's going to get them somewhere else besides this dead end, hard luck world that they're in. So the first fabulous thing was to find uh, what is called a Yitzker book. They are memorial books that were created after the Holocaust in Israel that gathered together the memories and essays and poems and uh, impressions of people from these Russian villages and towns that had been destroyed. And her town had this very robust, beautifully documented memorial book. The Second great discovery, though, I was poking around on the internet trying to find mentions of Polly Adler, and on this antiquarian bulletin board, somebody says, does anyone know what a small suitcase full of papers from a woman named Virginia Faulkner and Polly Adler would be worth? To which I was like, they're worth nothing to anybody, but they're worth the world to me. And a guy who was a demolition guy, and he had rescued this from a building that he was. uh, He ended up giving me photocopies of the writing notebook for Polly Adler's ghostwriter the brilliant editor and writer, Virginia Faulkner, who had really made that book what it was, the big bestseller that it was. The suitcase had correspondence between the two of them. It had correspondence with lawyers and with editors. It had private notes that Virginia had made to herself. It had lists of a lot of the people who had to be cut out or have their names changed. It had the real dates for certain things that had had to be changed. And it listed every single major living gangster at the time. And this is around the time of the key 
Keith Hoffer reports in, in 1950. This is a, a gold mine. It's not everything, but it is enough to send me down into the Grand Canyon of research. And uh, there were really two other fabulous blessings. When Polly died, she left a pretty substantial estate, but she also left two trunks of keepsakes, programs and letters and newspaper clippings and photo albums, even things like little items of clothing, her first dancing shoes, uh, the little t-shirt that she had worn when she took the boat to Ellis Island. Unfortunately, her family, I mean, one can understand this, were very embarrassed by her profession when they discovered it. Nonetheless, they took her money. They were happy to be supported by her. She brought them over from Russia. She supported them all the time. When her last brother died, he had been one of the ones to be most judgmental about her. He threw away most of the stuff in these trucks. Ouch. Yeah. I still have a, a passionate grudge against Sam Adler. Uh, but he, enough had been saved. And the woman who had helped take care of him in his final years had saved it. So I went out to LA and there was, again, it wasn't everything. There were some of the books, there were some letters, but it was more than enough to keep me in the research zone. And then the very last blessing was I became very close friends with one of Polly's relatives who was in the process of becoming a master genealogist. And may I suggest you all biographers have a master genealogist as both a friend and family member, because anyone who does that sort of work knows that's its own specialty. So why did I do this book? Because the muses had decided, decreed that this book would be done. That was author Debbie Applegate speaking with fellow biographer Jack Farrell about her book, Madam, a biography of Polly Adler, icon of the jazz age, published by Doubleday in November 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on October 29, 2021. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our new theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>